Ephesians 6, starting in verse 5 here in just a moment. Many years ago, Frederick Douglass wrote in his autobiography, and I quote, Bad as all slaveholders are, we seldom meet one destitute of every element of character commanding respect. My master was one of this rare sort. I do not know of one single noble act ever performed by him. The leading trait in his character was meanness. And if there were any other element in his nature, it was made subject to this. He was mean. And like most other mean men, he lacked the ability to conceal his meanness. In August 1832, my master attended a Methodist camp meeting and there experienced religion. I indulged in the faint hope that his conversion would lead him to emancipate his slaves, and that if he did not do this, it would at any rate make him more kind and humane. I was disappointed in both these respects. If it had any effect on his character, it made him more cruel and hateful in all his ways. I believe him to have been a much worse man after his conversion than before. Prior to his conversion, he relied upon his own depravity to shield and sustain him in his savage barbarity. But after his conversion, he found religious sanction and support for his slaveholding cruelty. Does the Bible legitimize slavery? What are we to do with passages like the one we come to today? Back in the times of the Civil War, there were Christian men and women using the passage we are going to look at today to argue for the continuation of slavery, that slavery was right and that it was sanctioned by the Bible. In this section that we're in in Ephesians right now, if you remember, we're looking at submission to authority. We have seen Paul's words to wives and husbands. We've seen Paul's words to children and parents. But now we see his words to slaves and masters. And it introduces a brand new difficulty, which has tripped up many people who are considering Christianity. But I hope to show you today that, one, the Bible does not legitimize slavery. And two... There are important lessons for every believer to learn from this very passage. So let's read our passage today. Ephesians chapter 6, starting in verse 5, we'll go down to verse 9. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. Not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. Now, we begin today with something I think is necessary for us to take a step back from the passage itself and ask, 
What do we do with slavery in the Bible? In the Bible. Now, just a show of hands here. How many of you would think slavery is wrong? Raise your hand. Okay, that's most everybody. Uh, Just forgive me for a moment. I'm going to spend some time just taking down the names of everyone who didn't raise their hand. We, of course, we believe slavery is wrong. It's a a moral atrocity and a, a black eye on our nation as a whole. Perhaps one of the things that we are most ashamed of in the history of our country. But what do we do with a passage like this? We come to the Bible. This is the word of God. This is God telling us how to live our lives. This is God telling people of the first century how to live their lives. We believe with all our hearts that every word in Scripture is breathed out from God himself. It's inspired by the Lord. And one of the reasons why people reject Christianity is because they believe that the Bible legitimizes things that are morally wrong, like slavery. Now, I want to to, to show you how the ESV, look at your text. I don't know if you're looking at an English Standard Version or perhaps another translation. The English Standard Version uses the word bondservant here, whereas many other translations will use the word slave. Okay, both of those translations would be uh, acceptable, but many other translations would use the word slave. We'll come back to that here in a minute. The reason I wanted to show you that right now is because if you're reading through an ESV, you might say, well, this this is, doesn't really say slave. No, it's, it's slavery. We're not going to sugarcoat things. This is talking about slavery right here in Ephesians 6. And Paul is giving commandments from the Lord to both masters and slaves. Now, notice first how slaves and masters were in the same church. That's an implication from what we're reading today. These letters, like Ephesians, were sent to churches and they were read aloud in the churches. And so there's slaves and masters in the same churches. Paul also addressed slaves in his first letter to the Corinthians, in the letter to the Colossians, and in 1 Timothy, and Timothy was actually at Ephesus, which we're reading the letter to Ephesus here. So it wasn't just masters who were getting converted to Christianity in the first century. It was slaves as well. Now think for a moment what it would have been like to be in a church gathering and to hear this letter to the Ephesians read aloud. Let's say you're in the church at Ephesus. The letter's being read aloud and there's slaves and masters sitting side by side, both of them hearing these words from Paul. What would that have been like for them? What would it have been like for the slave himself To hear things like, masters, do the same to them, stop your threatening, but also to hear things like, don't serve your master as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Think about what it would have been like for a master to hear that part of it, but then to hear the part that we talked about in verse 9 there. Now, The question comes up in most everybody's mind, why in the world wouldn't Paul just come out and say, slaves or slave masters, free your slaves, for slavery is wrong? Why wouldn't Paul come out and say that? Well, one of the reasons is slavery in the Bible was much different than slavery in the way that you are probably thinking of it when you hear that word. 
When we hear the word slavery today, what do we think of? Well, most of us think of the race-based chattel slavery where white Europeans and Americans bought and sold black people and considered them property. Or perhaps you might even think of the practice that still goes on today in dark corners of the world where it's easy for us not to look, the practice of human trafficking, right? Maybe we think about that when we hear the word slavery, but understand, understand that in the Bible, that was not the situation that they lived in. Understand that when this was written, it was long before, centuries before, the the slavery that comes into our minds of the 16th through 18th centuries and even outside of those times in various places. In fact, there are places in the Bible where God gives commands against those evil practices that we just talked about. Slavery in in terms of race-based slavery, owning humans as property, trafficking them in terms of money. For instance, in 1 Timothy 1.10, which is a list of sinful, ungodly practices, we read this. The sexually immoral... Men who practice homosexuality, and then it says, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. That word enslaver there, you'll even have a a footnote in most of your Bibles. It's a term that means taking people captive in order to enslave them. And God says that's ungodly, that's morally wrong. These people are not going to inherit the kingdom of God unless they repent. Paul says it's explicitly evil. That's the same Paul that wrote Ephesians. The slavery in Paul's day was much different from the slavery that we tend to think about. First of all, it was most often voluntary from the slave's perspective. It was most often voluntary. Why? Because slavery, this is the reason we're getting into why the ESV uses the word bondservant. Slavery in Paul's day was a temporary solution to bankruptcy. If you fell on hard times back then, They didn't have the kind of economy where you could file for bankruptcy or request help from the government. How were you going to eat if all of your money and all of your possessions were gone? If your land was, was taken away, if your land wasn't producing, how were you going to make sure you took care of yourself and your family? Oftentimes what people would do was hire themselves out to someone else who had enough and say, can I work for you in exchange for food, in exchange for a living or for a livelihood? Now, second, it had nothing to do with race or social status. It had everything to do with economics, but nothing to do with race or social status. Could have had a person from different backgrounds, even a person of nobility, when when you consider their birth, that could even find themselves in this situation at times. It was temporary. It wasn't lifelong. It wasn't a, a label put on you, this is who you are. And slaves and servants had rights that were protected by law. They even had the right to appeal to a higher legal authority if they were being mistreated. And so one of the reasons Paul doesn't say, set your slaves free, is because some of those slaves did not want to go free. Set them free to what? To poverty? Set them free to die? No, some of those slaves were there on purpose. And so this, this... really was not the same at all as the slavery that most of us think in our minds when we hear that term. And so this is why the ESV uses that term bond servant there rather than slave. In most ESVs, you'll have a footnote in your Bible where it talks about this. The, the translation committee that worked on the ESV Bible, which 
just trust me, is a who's who of Hebrew, Greek, and Bible scholars. The men who were in this room debating this term were a, a, a just absolute who's who of scholars of the Bible. Many of you wouldn't know their names, but in the, the, the you know, ministry world, the, these are really big names and important people who have worked their way up to that point. But what they did was, they, they thought that the typical English reader that heard the word slave would read back into it our own modern understanding of slavery. And so they used the term bondservant instead. The unjust and inhumane slavery of Africans by white Europeans and Americans had not even happened yet at the time this was written. And so you have to understand the master-slave relationship Paul is speaking to here is not the same as the ones you are likely thinking of. That's the reason they choose this word. But second, we need to understand also what Jesus taught about the reason he came. What did Jesus teach about the reason he came? Many of the Jews expected the Messiah to show up and free them from Roman oppression, right? But what did Jesus say to Pilate in John 18, right before Pilate hands him over to the Jews? He's having that private conversation with this Roman ruler, And Jesus says to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would be fighting to keep me from being handed over. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this world. In other words, Jesus did not come to overthrow governments. Jesus did not come to start wars. Jesus didn't even come to change social issues, at least not in the way that most people expected. Oh, Jesus' kingdom would go on to change all manner of social issues in the world. In fact, if you read a biography of a man by the name of William Wilberforce, you will find that the abolition of slavery in Great Britain in the early 1800s was due to the influence of Christianity on that man and the people around him. It was Christianity that caused him to work so hard and so tirelessly for the abolition of slavery in Great Britain. So Jesus started a kingdom that's a spiritual kingdom. It's a subversive kingdom. What I mean by that is it works under the surface. It changes hearts, which is a lot more effective than merely changing laws. Jesus came to free people from the oppression and slavery of sin. But in doing so, in doing so, Jesus radically transformed the way that his followers would treat one another and treat other people. In all kinds of relationships, Jesus radically transformed all kinds of relationships. He didn't say we're going to do away with all of these distinctions, but what he did was he transformed the way that we treat people who are different than us. Jew and Greek, male and female, husband and wife, child and parent, and even slave and master. Now, Having said all of that, if you read the New Testament carefully, you will see that even this custom of slavery in that day was not being approved by Paul or the other New Testament writers. Rather, they were kind of dealing with what was already there. Remember, the Christians in first century Rome were such a minority, there's no way that they had any kind of power to change the way the world worked, at least not in direct ways, subversively over years and years. Absolutely they could. 
but at least not in direct ways and not political ways. And so the New Testament, as you will see when you read through it, it doesn't approve of slavery, even that kind of slavery. Listen to 1 Corinthians 7, starting in verse 21, where Paul says, this same Paul writing to the Corinthians this time, were you a bondservant when called? He means called to the Lord. Do not be concerned about it. Parentheses, but if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. And then he goes on to say, for he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freed man of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a bondservant of Christ. And then watch this last verse. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. Don't become bondservants of men. He actually throws that in there. And you think, well, wait a second. What if someone fell on hard times? In the first century, Jesus instituted a new way for people to be taken care of when they fell on hard times. A new way for people who didn't have enough to be taken care of. What was that way? It was the church. It was the church. Go read the short book of Philemon one day. Philemon, it's not even more than a chapter long. The book of Philemon is Paul writing to a man named Philemon, and he's writing on behalf of that man's runaway slave named Onesimus. Onesimus had run away from his slave owner, to Paul. And when Paul was with him, Paul has this effect on people. He became a Christian. He converted him. And so the man becomes a Christian. And then Paul says, now that you're a Christian, here's what we're going to do. We're not going to just send you away somewhere else. We're going to send you back to your owner with this letter in hand. And in that letter, Paul lays the guilt really thick on Philemon to free Onesimus and to treat him as a brother in Christ. You can see it all over the letter. You can read it for yourself. But it's a a wonderful way of Paul subversively kind of getting underneath the surface of the practice of slavery and showing us he did not approve of it. He's just dealing with what is there. That's often what the Bible does. It deals with the, the social practices and the social norms that are there. But through Christ and through the gospel, it transforms the way that we treat other people. It would would have transformed the ways that masters treated slaves and it would transform the way slaves submitted to their masters. And that's where we're going right now. That's where we're going to go right now. We need to look at this passage and understand that culturally this practice is far removed from what we experience today in our everyday lives. But what lessons can we take from it? What lessons can we take from this passage today in a world where we don't experience these relationships? First, the first lesson comes in verses 5 through 7. A lesson about our earthly masters. The obedience that we give to our masters, our authority figures, should not be superficial only. Look at verse 5, where he tells bondservants to obey their earthly masters with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Verse 6, he says, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants, not of the master, of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. The parallel passage in Colossians says it like this, Colossians 3.23, whatever you do, work heartily, 
as for the Lord and not for men. And so we, in our lives, are submitting to authority figures, obeying our bosses, our teachers, our government officials, our police officers, and we should be doing so as we would obey and submit to Christ himself. We should be doing so not in a superficial way, but doing it as we would do it to Christ himself, obeying and submitting as we would to Christ. What do you do at work when no one's watching? What do you do when no one's holding you accountable? What do you do when no one's going to know whether your performance was good or bad? Christ will know. Christ is watching. At a former job that I had in Lexington at a warehouse, we, we worked at a, a warehouse distribution facility for mobile home parts, right, believe it or not. And we had a VP of operations that was over all the, the, the branches in eastern, the eastern United States. We had 13 branches, if I remember. I worked at just one of them. But when we heard that he was coming, his name was Jim Eads. When we, when we learned that Jim Eads was coming, well, we, we perked up and we cleaned that place and we acted like we were doing everything to the exact standards every single time. Boy, we were efficient and we were working hard. And then when he left, it was like, get back out the ping pong table, you know. It, it, was, it was when he, when he was there, right, when we, we got whiffed that he was coming. So what do you do when no one's watching? It says don't, don't obey your authority figure. Apply this not just to slave masters. Apply this to your employer, to your teachers, to, to your elders at the church, to government officials. What do we do when no one's watching? Are we submitting just when people are watching and then when, when they leave, we can do whatever we want? Or are we obeying and submitting as we would to Christ himself? Second lesson we can take away from this is in verse 8. The Lord rewards those who submit like this. The Lord rewards people who do this. Look at verse 8. Knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. The, the parallel passage again in Colossians 3, verse 24 says, Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward, you are serving the Lord Christ. God rewards this kind of behavior. And the question is, do you believe it? Do you believe that you will receive a reward for obedience and submission to authority even when no one is watching? Why should we obey and submit to our authority figures with sincerity and good work even when no one is watching? It's because the Lord is watching and he rewards those who do this. By doing this, you are storing up for yourself, as Jesus said in Matthew 6, storing up for yourself treasures in heaven. Now, I want you to hear uh, an extremely helpful passage on this topic from 1 Peter 2. I'm going to read 1 Peter 2, verses 13 through 16. They'll be up on the screen behind me. This is extraordinarily helpful. I'll show you why here in just a second. Let's read it. Peter writes, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme, or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Here's what Peter says. 
If you are in Christ, you're free. You are free. There's no, you don't have any masters on this earth. You have one master, that's Jesus Christ. You're free. And so how are we going to use that freedom? Are we going to use it by throwing off all human authority and doing whatever we please? No. Peter says we're going to use that freedom by submitting to human institutions. Human institutions for the Lord's sake. And in so doing, you are giving a radical witness for the Lord and for the transformation that the gospel of Jesus Christ brings to people. We submit to human institutions, human institutions, right? In our Ephesians passage, we've got wives and husbands. That's not a human institution. God instituted that one. We've got parents and children. God instituted that one. But notice the third in this section on submission and authority, bond servants and masters. God didn't institute that one. That's a human institution. And Peter talks about submitting to governments, even if they're non-Christian governments, even if they're not honoring God. You could think of it as your boss. You could think about it as uh, perhaps a husband, wives, that, that is not following the Lord. We still ought to submit to these in whatever ways we can. And as we do so, we make clear that we are doing this for God and for his glory. And so you might be at a job where your boss is not particularly glorifying to God. And you say, boss, I'm going to do the work that you give me. And I'm going to follow your, your rules to the best of my ability, with the very best attitude, not primarily for you, but for God. Joe Biden, I'm going to submit to your authority as president, as long as it's not a sin. And I'm going to do so with respect and sincerity, not because of you, but because of God, without whom you would not even have your position of authority. Remember when Jesus said to Pilate, if God did not give you the power that you have, you wouldn't have it. Same, same principle applies to presidents and kings and monarchs and fill in the blank. And so... We want to serve with sincere hearts because God rewards those who serve like that. Third lesson, the third lesson here comes in verse 9, which says, Our authority figures will stand before God and give an account to him of how they used their authority. This would be so amazing for a slave sitting in a worship service, a church gathering, next to his master to hear. Masters, verse 9, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven. And with him there is no partiality. He who is both your master and theirs. No partiality with the Lord. You will give an account, authority figures. If you're an authority figure in any way, parent, husband, employer, government official, fill in the blank, elder of the church, you will give an account to God for the way that you used or misused your authority. And that is so helpful for those of us who are under authority. It protects from the abuse of that authority. Colossians 3.25, again in that parallel passage, says, For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong that he has done, and there is no partiality. 
And so we need to think about this passage in terms of our own earthly masters, our own earthly authority figures. But we also need to think about it in terms of what it teaches us about our heavenly master. There in verse 9, he who is both their master and yours, the master of all. Christ is the master of all, slave or free. And with him, what does it tell us? With him there is no partiality. Thank the Lord. With Christ, there is no partiality. In Christ, a master is no better than a slave. These are earthly titles. In Christ, a slave is just as much a son of God as a master. And his inheritance is just as rich as the master. Many people today reject Christianity because of the the presence of slavery in the Bible. And yet, in the 16, 17, and 1800s, Christianity flourished among the black slave community. It flourished. And we've got all of these people who are so smart today rejecting Christianity because of the presence of slavery in the Bible. How in the world did Christianity flourish among the slave community in the 1617 and 1800s, if the Bible is so oppressive, how did it flourish? It was because with Christ there is no partiality. With Christ there is no partiality. Jesus provides a power to bear up under unjust authority so that even harsh earthly masters cannot touch the treasure that you have inside. No one can take away from you the sonship And the inheritance that is waiting for you on the other side of death. Do you realize the news that that would be to a slave under the hand of an unjust and cruel master? There's something on the other side of this temporary short life. The sufferings of this present life are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. This is short. This is temporary. Eternity is coming. Eternity is coming. And for all of those who come to God in Jesus Christ, you have an eternity waiting on you. An eternity of freedom. An eternity of glory. An eternity with crowns on your head. An eternity with a possession that is more than anything you could ever receive in this earthly life. Some of the most beloved hymns that have come down to us through the centuries are African-American spirituals from the slave era. And almost all of them talk about the hope of heaven on the other side. Why? Because of the suffering that they were experiencing then. Right? Did you know that in this text, the same Greek word is used here for master and for lord? Now, that's, that's huge because look at the way it uses it. Bond servants, verse 5, obey your earthly masters. That's the Greek word kurios, kurios. And then he goes on, verse 6, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord, same word, kurios. And not to man, verse 8, knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive back from the Lord, kurios, whether he is a bondservant or free. Verse 9, masters, same word, kurios, 
do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master, same word, and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. It's the same word, Lord, master. What does the word Lord mean? What does it mean that Jesus is Lord? When we say that, when we say Jesus is Lord, what do we mean? We mean that Jesus is our master. We mean that he owns us. We are voluntarily entering in to slavery of Christ. The Bible tells us that all over the place. Look at 1 Corinthians 6, starting in verse 19, where Paul says, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. Watch this language. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. You were bought. So glorify God in your body. We should see ourselves as joyfully obedient, voluntary slaves of God. Paul says in Romans 6.22, we've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God. Now there's a wonderful connection right here to the Old Testament. Because in the Old Testament, there was a rule. The Old Testament regulated slavery just like the New Testament does here. But God regulated it in a, a more, more direct way because of the, the lack of existence of governments and things like that that we have in the first century and onward. But in the Old Testament law, slaves had to be set free every seven years. The Israelites would acquire slaves through various means. There were times where God told the Israelites to go defeat another nation. And then the people that you leave alive, you bring them back and they will serve you as punishment for their sin. They will serve you as your servants, as your slaves. But in the Old Testament law, slaves had to be set free every seven years. Even if it was an Israelite who voluntarily entered into slavery, you had to set your slave free every seven years. And the masters had to provide for them as they went out. This is not your typical slavery here. The masters had to provide for them as they went out so that they'd have something to build a life on. But there was a provision in the law. What if the slave wanted to remain with his master? What if the slave loved his master? He didn't want to go. He wanted to remain. Here's what they would do. The master would take a tool and they'd, they'd put the slaves, and this is very primitive, but this is how they had to do it, put the slave's ear up to a, a, like a door, a, a, a brace, a wooden door, And then they would pierce a hole, puncture a hole in their ear. And that hole would signify that from all time, from there until that servant's death, he was that master's. I'm staying with this master because I love him and because I don't want to leave. Brothers and sisters, that's us. That's us. We give ourselves voluntarily to be slaves of God because he is the greatest master. He is a wonderful and benevolent master. And because you're going to be a slave to something. That's what the Bible says. You're going to be a slave to something. Either you're a slave to sin or you're a slave to God. You don't have any other choice. Either you're a slave to sin, a slave to yourself, a slave to your own desires, a slave to your own search for happiness, or you're a slave to to God who gives you everything you need and more, everything you could ever want and satisfies your every desire. We are like those slaves in the Old Testament saying, I don't want to be free. 
I don't want to go anywhere else. When Jesus taught some hard things in John 6, a lot of people who were following him at that time walked away. They said they were done. I, I can't, that, that's a line too far. I can't cross it. Jesus looked at Peter and the other disciples and says, what are y'all going to do? Are y'all going to leave too? And Peter says, where else are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. There's no other choice here. Peter saw it. He got it. We don't want to leave. We don't want to be free from this slavery, from this bondage. We want to be slaves of God forever. Because it's a joy. and It's a privilege. And it is true freedom. It's the only true freedom. And the only way you can do that is by coming to him through Jesus Christ. Do you want him to pierce your ear? Do you want him to put his hand on you and say, this one is mine forevermore? You can do that today even by giving your life to Jesus Christ. We're going to take some time right now and we're going to pray silently, individually, responding to what the Lord has laid upon each one of our hearts. That's what this time is for. Go to the Lord. Deal with him in your mind and in your heart as he deals with you through the Holy Spirit. After we have a few moments of silent prayer for each of us to respond to the Lord, we'll come back. We'll have an invitation time to where those who need to respond to God's word publicly can do so. Let's pray.